If you have your Bibles, um, you can open them to John chapter uh, 12, starting with verse 24. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Well, we're in a series called Wake Up. We are looking at research from a Barna survey that revealed 10 transformational stops along the Christian journey towards spiritual maturity. And what the research showed is that a lot of Christians get stuck halfway through the process. That we come to faith in Christ, we find a faith community, we receive the sacrament of baptism, we get involved in in various church activities, and that's about as far as we get. But there is more. There is much more. And so we want to help you discover how to move into the second half of the gospel, what we call sanctification. Last week we talked about step number uh, six, a holy discontentment. Christians at this stop realize that they have stopped growing in their faith, but they want more. They're no longer satisfied with where they are. But today we're looking at stop number seven called brokenness. Now, the scripture from John's gospel is commonly read as a part of the graveside uh, service at a burial. And it reminds those gathered around the grave that death produces seeds of life that bears fruit for eternity. But when Jesus says this, he's speaking of his coming death and how it will set in motion a whole new order of things that will produce many seeds for a rich harvest. Jesus' death is a victory because paradoxically, it leads to life for you and for me. And of course, this is true spiritually as well. In verse 25, he reminds us that in losing our lives in service to Christ, we will find eternal life. But what does that mean? What does it mean to lose your life? Well, it begins with our brokenness. And it often happens when life hits a crisis. Uh, Something happens that disrupts your life. It might be the death of a loved one or a change in finances or a moral breakdown or a relationship that breaks down. And sometimes we interpret this as punishment uh, from God, but it's not. God may use it for a redemptive purpose, but it's not some kind of divine retribution. Now, our normal reaction to a crisis is to get back to normalcy as quickly as we can. And sometimes we're able to do that, but for many of us, I would say most of us, you can't go back to the way that things used to be. Life is too disrupted. You know that, uh, you, you know, you, 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 something needs to change in your life, but you just can't. And you discover that no matter how hard you try, you are helpless to resolve the issue. My mother um, used to say raising six children did that for her. 
Things went pretty smoothly the first 15 years or so of parenthood. Uh, She thought that she had mastered it and couldn't understand why other parents struggled with their kids. And then things changed. Things became difficult. And nothing she did seemed to make any difference. And she began to realize that she was powerless to resolve the issue. We see this brokenness in Peter's life. When Jesus tells the twelve that he'll be put to death when they arrive in Jerusalem, Peter takes him aside and he rebukes the Lord. He says, never, Lord. That's not going to happen. This will never happen to you. Remember how Jesus replied? He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns mainly himself. Peter cared about himself. So that while Jesus was being condemned before the Sanhedrin, Peter was in the courtyard denying uh, that he even knew Jesus. Peter denied the Lord because he would not deny himself. Let me say that again. Peter denied the Lord because he would not deny himself. The Bible says the rooster crowed, and the gospel says that Peter went outside, and he wept bitterly. Peter was a broken man. And the Christian faith has a word for this, and it's called the dark night of the soul. It's a spiritual crisis in which a person feels a a sense of loneliness, a sense of abandonment, a, a helplessness to change. And the spiritual life becomes difficult and unrewarding. Our prayers seem to hit the ceiling and bounce back unanswered. Oftentimes we feel angry towards God. After Mother Teresa passed away, it was revealed in her journals that she struggled as well. She wrote, I am told that God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Now, some people said it revealed how weak Mother Teresa's faith really was. But those who know better understand that the dark night almost always results in a stronger faith, and almost everyone who was on the spiritual journey will go through it and go through it intact. King David went through it as well. We see it in Psalm 22. Now, we don't know the circumstances. Some people think that perhaps it was some kind of sickness. But a major crisis has come into David's life, and it left him reeling. His life with God had been characterized by closeness and and intimacy uh, that had been deeply treasured, but now he feels totally abandoned, totally He writes, I cry by day, but you do not answer. I cry at night, but I find no rest. David looked around for God. He looked around for answers, but God was nowhere to be found. See, David had had this intimate relationship all of his life. He he writes, since my mother bore me, you have been my God. David doesn't remember a time when he, when he didn't know God, when he wasn't close to him. And the reason for that is simple. It was a part of his, of his upbringing. It was a part of his heritage. His, his family had a long history with God. 
It goes back generations. And he remembers how they trusted in God and they were delivered from their problems. And so he's thinking to himself, why does God not help me? Why did he help my ancestors and he does not help me? And it doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair. So whatever has happened to David to make him feel deserted by God has now become a a public spectacle. He writes in verses 6, he says, I am scorned by others and despised by the people. All who seek who, all who see me mock at me. David should be glad that he didn't live in the age of social media. <laughs> Instead of being just shamed by your neighbors, your community, you're, you're shamed by the whole world now. But he's exhausted and he's sick and he's discouraged and he's surrounded by enemies and he's at the brink of death. And he realizes that he is helpless to change his situation. David is a broken man. And this is how God uses our brokenness. We realize that the world and and all that it offers can no longer truly satisfy us. That everything that we thought would make us successful in life, wealth and power and influence and popularity fails. And even things like friendships and and finding that perfect soulmate and, and the blessings of children does not really satisfy us. And God uses our brokenness to to wean us away from our sin, to wean us away from ourselves, to wean us away from the world, from our society, from our culture. And God begins to move us from self-dependence to God-dependence. Now this stop on our way to spiritual maturity can be a terrible and frightening place. But it can also be a place of learning and and growth. There are things that you can learn here that can be learned nowhere else. And so we find ourselves plunged into an awareness of, of danger and even death. But the very same moment we are plunged, if we allow ourselves to be into the awareness of the great mystery and love of God. You see, where I have really grown spiritually has been in those times of brokenness. Times where it felt like everything that I depend on has been stripped away. For here it is that I come face to face with God and where He confronts me. And and where I am tested. Where I take the test and I either pass or I fail. I become more or I become less. I either grow in faith or I begin to to regress. And there's something that happens in our brokenness, something where all the toys of civilization are stripped away and we are confronted with who we are and what we've become. And it is there that we'll learn how to have a radical trust in God. You see, we need to realize that trusting in God's provision, it comes in steps, small steps. Trusting God to to help us, it's frightening. But God challenges us to take little steps at a time. Trusting in God is learning to believe in, in small steps. It's growing little by little in our trusting until we get to the place where we believe God wants us to be. It's a process. 
Now, in the research that Barnett conducted, he also made another disturbing discovery. Of the 15,000 people surveyed and interviewed, only 10% really had a biblical worldview. Few of those folks believed in the authority of Scripture or in the existence of, of absolute moral truth or that salvation is by grace alone. Now, why is this? What Barnett discovered is that too often we Christians are, are formed not by Scripture or, or not by the community of faith, but we are formed by, by the world, by culture. And so rather than changing society for the better, society is changing us for the worse. Here's why it matters. Some years ago... Um, GQ magazine did a couple of interviews that present two very different worldviews. The first interview was done with actor Matthew McConaughey who said this. He said, I'm a fan of the world selfish, self and ish. When I say I have gotten a lot more selfish, I mean I am less concerned with what people think of me. Selfish has gotten a bad rap. You should do for you. But then just a couple pages later in another interview, GQ interviewed an award-winning fiction writer named George Sanders, a man they named Life Coach of the Year. Now listen to what Sanders says. He says, the big kahuna of all moral questions, as far as I am concerned, is ego. How do you correct the fundamental misperception that we are all born with, namely the idea that I am central. All of the nasty stuff in this life comes out of that misunderstanding. You see, until we are willing to abandon our sin and self and, and the approval of culture, we're going to struggle. <coughs> we're going to struggle to move to the next stop. And brokenness helps us to do that. Brokenness helps us to move. We depend less on ourselves and, and more on God. We understand that, that God has to be the center of our life before we can attain the life that we want. And it begins when we give control back to God. You see, as long as we retain control, we will never know the strength. We will never know the freedom that comes from our utter, complete dependence upon God. And the truth is that it requires a behavioral shift as well. Let me go back to our scripture. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. For my Father will honor the one who serves me. So how do we serve Christ? Well, we serve him by following him. To be the same kind of servant that he was. It's a call to give up our vested interest in the world and to follow Jesus in the way of servanthood. You see, Jesus unapologetically and with no ambiguity whatsoever calls every one of, us, of his followers to acts of service. He says to us, I, I want you to be different from the rest of the world, to do things that normal pride-filled people would never think of, of doing. In other words, Jesus is calling us to leave behind ourselves, to leave behind our petty concerns of status and titles and positions of, of my wants and my desires. He's calling us to, to daily acts of kindness and service and to make that a lifestyle. 
to do things uh, like opening doors or, or sharing the remote control or helping around the house, the office, the classroom in ways that are uncharacteristic and, and unexpected by the rest of the world. In a word, he calls us to go the second mile. The other day I was waiting in line at a local uh, food establishment. I've never quite figured out how the the line in this particular place is supposed to work, but I've been waiting some time when, when a little old lady came up. She looked me right in the eye and she said, Sir, I'm not crowding in front of you. I just need to lean against the counter. Who was I to deny this senior citizen a little support? So I said, Well, of course, no problem. But then the clerk came up and the woman placed her order. <laughs> I was stunned. I mean, little old ladies aren't what they used to be, are they? She tricked me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, fine. I'll just go to the other cash register, which was, there was no line there. And I walked over there, and suddenly uh, another person jumped in front of me. And, man, I was livid. I was so hot that I just turned around and I walked out. I hate it when I do that, when I lose my cool. What's the big deal? Why not take the serving role and, and offer these people my place in line? Why not let the car ahead of you while you're driving? Why not pay for the lunch at McDonald's, you know, at the person who's behind you in the drive-thru? Why not? Why not serve? Notice that Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me. Did you catch that? Here is Jesus making a blanket across the board, no exception promise that those who practice this lifestyle of serving people in practical ways, who choose to live beyond themselves, will be the recipients of God's blessing and favor. Something supernatural will be released into your life as you begin to serve. Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough that you would choose to reorder the priorities in your life, your value system, your core beliefs in order to live the kind of life that Jesus models for us? It's a decision that we'll face many times in our life. We can keep looking for shortcuts to fast cash, money, uh, more power, more applause, more fame, whatever it is that makes you feel fulfilled in life. Or... We can keep looking for ways to make a difference into the lives of others. The Bible considers Solomon one of the greatest kings of Israel ever. His wisdom was legendary. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have recorded a, a period of his life when he did this swan dive into the deep end of the self-gratification pool. And he writes this. He says, so I decided to build houses for myself. One will not do. I, I want more than one house. And after that, I built vineyards, and then I built gardens and parks and planted trees. And then I bought slaves and livestock to impress my friends. And then I decided to amass silver and gold for myself. Sounds like a lot, but he's not done yet. He goes on, he says, I acquired men and women singers. So he has his own choir. He has his own orchestra. And then he goes on, he says, I got delights of the flesh and many concubines. I don't even know how to comment on that and then he concluded this hedonistic bind binge by saying I decided to deny myself nothing 
that my eyes desired. Denied himself nothing. I mean, talk about hitting the jackpot. Is that the American dream? To have the opportunity and the resources to be able to deny yourself nothing that your eyes desire? Are these our heroes? People who are able to acquire all their material desires? Are these the people that we envy? If so, listen to the next verse. Solomon writes, When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. Nothing was really gained under the sun. King James Version puts it this way, Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And so the smartest guy of his time shoots for soul satisfaction and a sense of purpose by this massive self-gratification pursuit, and it's a total bust. But does that surprise us? Because it seems like almost every week in the media, a story of someone who relentlessly spends his life pursuing fame and fortune and self-gratification, and then we begin to watch as their lives begin to unravel and self-destruct. And you think by now that we'd have this figured out. You would think at some point in human history, there would be a chorus of a million people, a million voices rising up and crying out, stop, don't do that, it doesn't work, never has, never will. And if you give in to that self-gratification monster, he will eat you alive and spit you out. God did not wire us this way. And you'll get to the end of your life and you'll regret it. What's the alternative? It's following Jesus. It's following his teaching, his example of living life in a very focused and dedicated and practical way. It's acting on the promise that if you serve others, your life will be greatly blessed, that God will fill your fulfillment bucket to overflowing. And you're going to have to make that decision. You're going to have to make up your mind what kind of life you're going to live. And once you decide, you're going to have to commit. Because each of us has a choice to make. And it's fundamentally one of the most important choices that you will ever make as a Christ follower. It's either following the life of Jesus or following the self-gratification life. But you cannot move to the next stop until you make that choice. And it begins with repentance. After Peter had denied the Lord three times, the Bible said that he went out and he wept bitterly. I know it sounds awful, but that was a turning point in Peter's life. And it's the same with us. See, that is what will take us to the next stop. Saying no to security, no to power, no to pleasure. Weeping bitterly for the way that things are. Confessing our temper, our pride, our, our jealousy, our envy, our sharp words, our unkind judgments and unforgiving thoughts. To get down on our knees and to admit to God that we are not the people that we want to be that we are helpless to change, and that we are held captive by sin and by self and by our culture, and that we have put ourselves on the very throne of our lives. We can have only one master, and that master is the Lord Jesus. And then ask for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit to take us to the next stop in our journey 
towards holiness and love. If you're interested in that next stop, I encourage you to bow your heads and to pray this prayer with me. God, we're so grateful for the example of Jesus Christ who lived the kind of life that the multitudes marveled at because of its simplicity, its focus, and its kindness. God, we live in a crazy and mixed-up world that keeps taking us down the wrong road. And so today, we want to turn control of our lives to you. We want to go deeper with you. We pray that you would help us to live beyond ourselves, to redirect our lives so that we don't get to the end of our days and say, vanity, vanity, it was all a chasing of the wind. Lead us down the road that Jesus went to lose our lives to you and in service to this world and to live a life of love and holiness. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.